What if I told you um, that your life depended on you successfully traveling to a far distant destination to which you'd never been before uh, through hostile territory to present yourself uh, as pure to a holy king? And oh yes, you have no food for this long journey. You have no map. You have no directions on how to get there. You have no compass. You have no shield. You have no weapon. Oh yes, and you're blind. You're completely in the dark. And oh yes, you're painfully aware that you are not pure. How would you handle that situation? We'll come back to that in a minute. Have you noticed that most people that you encounter simply react to life? They just simply react to it. Um, they run purely on impulse, emotion, and mood. Worse still, most seem to be like sheep, like lemmings, and they just do what everybody else is doing. Without thinking about it critically, they just run, they fall in line and run with the herd. Most don't think about ultimate questions like, who am I? How did I get here? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? What is the purpose of everything? Am I accountable to someone? Most people never think about these kinds of questions. Most are oblivious to this kind of critical self-examination. The default mental state is fall in line behind the herd and run with them. Just run with the herd. Just do what everybody else is doing. It reminds me of an old joke, the plane's pilot. You know, I don't know if I ever told a joke ever in this church. Can any of you ever remember me telling a joke? It's really a bad joke. I don't normally do this, but it makes a good point. And it's not even funny, okay? So don't feel obliged. Don't feel obliged to laugh or anything. But the, the pilot comes on the, the loudspeaker and he says, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is... We've lost our instrumentation. We don't know where we are. We don't know where we're going. The good news is we have a tailwind and we're making great time. <laughs> That's the way it is with much of humanity. Absolutely no instrumentation. But they're making really good time. There's that great line in the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis's great story about demons scheming to keep human beings from God. And you know, Uncle Screwtape is, is counseling and mentoring his nephew and apprentice demon Wormwood. And uh, Screwtape shares with Wormwood that it's ever so easy to keep the human beings fogged about reality. I love that. Fogged about reality. I think we'd have to confess that much of mankind is definitely in the fog. Satan is good at his job. And he loves to keep you, if you'll cooperate with him, he loves to keep you running in the herd. He loves to keep you living on impulse, emotion, or mood. He likes to keep you in the fog, perpetually in the fog. Remember what Paul says about Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He calls him the little God, pardon me, the little G, remember, little G, God of this world. Satan is the God of... Media, entertainment, advertising, religion, culture, and education. Satan uses all of these things to keep men and women in the fog. This is his job. And he's good at it. He loves to keep men running in the herd. He likes to keep them 
uh, living on emotion and on feeling. He likes to keep them entertained and anesthetized to true reality. He likes to uh, focus them on being self-absorbed and self-consumed. He likes to keep men and women from thinking about things that really matter. Life and death matters. Heaven and hell matters. He likes to keep mankind fogged about ultimate reality, as Uncle Screwtape says. Because, beloved, this is reality. Your life does depend on you successfully traveling to a far distant destination to which you have never been through hostile territory to present yourself as pure before a holy king. And oh yes, you have no food, you have no map, you have no compass, you have no weapon, you are blind, you are in utter darkness, and you know without a doubt you are not pure. That is reality. That is our self-inflicted reality. So how do we navigate this impossible reality? We talked about it last week. The king of love, anybody remember, has sent for me. That's how. The king of love has sent for me. God has staged an intervention. He's come to save His people. We talked in depth about this last week. He's come to blow away the fog. He's come to get us off uh, those devastating sins of, of, of loving ourselves and spending our lives on ourselves. He's come to get us off those dry wells that do not quench our thirst. He's come to give Himself to His people. Awesome God. He has given Himself away to His people. It's unbelievable. God is the Gospel. You heard me say it earlier. God is the Gospel. He is the good news. And we are saved because He has saved us. He's an awesome, awesome God. God and His Word. Here's our answer to the first question. God and His Word is the answer. God and His Word is our food. It is our map. It is our compass. It is our sword. It is our sight. And in Jesus Christ, we are pure. Jesus is our righteousness. As we saw last week, as we began this short epistle, the, the epistle of, of Philippians, the short letter that Paul penned to the church he had planted ten years earlier. Some have dubbed this little letter. They've called it the epistle of joy. I told you last week that uh, the word joy or rejoicing is mentioned about 15 or 16 times depending on the translation that you have. Paul's joy flows from the fact that the king of love has sent for him. Beloved, <laughs> on your worst day, if you're a believer, you should be able to rejoice in that one simple fact the King of love has sent for you. And no one or no thing can change that. On your worst day, you can rejoice. You, tears can be rolling down your face at the circumstance and your heart can be full of joy because you belong to this beautiful, awesome God. Paul's joy flows from this fact. God had staged an intervention in Paul's life on that road to Damascus. God invaded Paul's life and turned it upside down just like He's done to every one of you in here who's a Christian tonight. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We've talked a lot about this. 
And Paul is out of the fog and he's on his way to the celestial city. Let me ask you, beloved, are you out of the fog and are you on your way with great purpose? Are you expending great energy in your pilgrimage to the celestial city and glorifying Christ all the way along? God will not leave Paul to himself. Philippians 1.6 I will complete the good work I've begun in you. Man, you can pray on your hardest day. You can praise God for that. You can praise God that God will never let you go. He'll never let you go. He'll complete it. And on the day that no one else can tell you're a Christian, He knows you're a Christian. He knows you love Him. And He'll complete the good work that He's begun in you. This is Paul's deepest joy. The King of love is sent for him. The King of love has come for him. The King of love has saved him. And that cannot be changed because our God is omnipotent and our God is sovereign. Paul knows what every born-again believer knows or should know. Our salvation rests in God completely from beginning to end. It's God's idea. It's God's initiative. It's God's work. Yes, as Bible believers, we understand God saves His people. We also understand we are called to cooperate in our own salvation. The Word of God tells us that we must repent of our sins, we must believe, we must exercise faith, and we are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our own sanctification as we begin to obey the Word of God. That is our part in the equation. So as the Holy Spirit reminds us that God's the author and perfecter of faith, Philippians 1.6, God is the author and perfecter of faith. He reminds us the real, what the reality looks like in the life of, the, of a true believer. What Philippians 1.6 looks like in the life of a true believer. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight in these verses. In our text tonight, this is simply a beautiful picture of what a maturing Christian looks like as he walks with Jesus Christ. We look increasingly more like who? Jesus. If it's real with us, I'm not talking about religion. If it's real with us, if we're in love with Christ, if we've given ourselves away to Him, we will increasingly look like Him in our words, in our deeds, in our actions, in every conceivable way. Verses 7 and 8. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how long I have, um, how I have longed for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Of course it's right for Paul to love the Philippians. At least for two reasons. We know why we're supposed to love the brethren. Why, why, why are we supposed to love the brethren? Someone tell me. Jesus says so. Jesus says, or actually, he says, this will be the authenticity of your Christianity, that you love the brothers. The world will know that you're a Christian because you love my people. This is what Jesus says. And how does Jesus tell us to, to love his people? Uh, if it's convenient and it's easy and it's not too much trouble... What does Jesus say? You're to love my people as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? Unconditionally. 
sacrificially, selflessly, expensive love, inconvenient love, unspeakable, unfathomable love, costly and expensive. I like to say it, it's blood, sweat, and tears love. That's how Jesus has loved us. Blood, sweat, and tears. And beloved, that's how you're supposed to be loving one another. That's how we're called to love one another. Just like that. Just like that. So it's right that Paul should feel this way. But there's something more here. Karen and I were talking about it just this week. We all know that some in the body are easier to love than others, right? Sometimes we have a natural affinity for, for someone and we just click and we love them in almost a natural way uh, in, addition to the, into the spirit, in, in addition to the spiritual way. You know, sometimes some people in the body are hard to love. So what does that mean? We don't love them? What does it mean? We're commanded to love them. This command is not about emotion and feeling. What's it about? It's about will and choice. Sometimes you have to love people just simply because you're commanded to. Amen? And you're commanded to love them selflessly. Not half-heartedly or with some reserve. Beloved, this is how we're, we're called to love. Sometimes... It's a decision of the will. It's a decision to honor Jesus. The only reason I can love this person because they treat me bad. They really drive me nuts. They irritate me in every conceivable way. But I will love them. I will love them because Jesus has commanded it. And again, it's sometimes just by choice and by will. I have had this experience in the church. You know, I've been, I've been a Christian. I've been in ministry, lay in vocational ministry for 25 years. And let me tell you why churches split. Let me tell you why churches break down. Let me tell you why so-called Christians uh, separate and go their own way. It's because they will not practice this kind of love. That's why. Yes, I understand sometimes truth divides. People who don't like the truth will separate. Paul, uh, John says they, they went out from us because they weren't of us. We understand that. Truth will divide, but beloved, let it not be for a lack of love. As we talked about last week, these Philippians have loved Paul. It's not just words we've talked about. It's not just their words. They have, we know three times from Scripture that they have sent him an offering. They love him. And they, they love him through their, their offering. And they become, as Paul says here, they become part of his ministry and even part of his imprisonment as he receives these offerings from them. These Philippians weren't hard to love. Why? Because they loved. You know, sometimes people will say to me, well, I don't feel much love in your church. I don't really ever hear that here. I've heard it in other churches. Let me tell you, I've never heard it here. My son's calling. Just a minute. So, I'll call him back. I've never heard it in this church. But you know the people who complain about not being loved? This has been my experience. They're the ones that aren't practicing love. It ought not be that way. We should love them anyway. But usually it's those who are not practicing love. They haven't made that decision. No matter how hard it is to love this person or love this body, I'm going to love them simply because Jesus has commanded me to. And you know what, beloved? As you start to love by will, you begin to love by what? Feeling. 
It's a divine thing that God does in our hearts as we obey Him in this. Paul says, you guys have selflessly invested in my life. He says, it's right that I should love you. You're in my heart. He says, I love you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Wow! That's awesome. With all the affection of Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He says, man, this is a fruit of the Spirit love. It's a divine love. It's a supernatural love. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. In the original Greek here, this word is uh, actual. Actually, the word for affection is the, is the word bowels. I love you from my bowels. Now, I know that doesn't translate well in the 21st century, but if you'd have been buying a Hallmark card back in the first century, it would have said, it would have said, I love you with all my bowels. I love you with my innermost being. I love you with all that I am. This is what Paul is saying. This is what Paul is saying. Verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more and real knowledge and all discernment. Paul has just complimented, complimented them on their love, but then he says this. I pray you'll learn to love more. Right? I pray that your love will abound still more. You know what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, beloved? You never arrive as a Christian. Never. Some of the worst Christians I've met are the ones who think they've arrived. They've got it all together. They've got all their boxes checked. They don't need to come to the Word and examine themselves by what, by, by what the Word of God has to say. Beloved, we never arrive as a Christian. You've, if you've been around very long, if you've been around any church very long, you, you know and you've heard this said, and you may have experienced this, that Christians, men or women who have been Christians a long time, they sometimes lose their passion or their zeal. Have you heard this said? Have you, have you seen this? Experienced this? Um, it's like they say, well, this is the most I could ever love. The most I could ever love is X. The most I could ever serve is Y. The most I could ever give is Z. So they just park on X, Y, and Z for two decades. Two decades or longer. Have you seen people who call themselves Christians just simply stagnate and sit down? Have you seen it? Paul's saying, beloved, hey, you've loved me graciously. You've loved me in an awesome way. But he says, I pray you learn to love more. I pray you do. What a great prayer. That's a pastor's prayer. That's a pastor's prayer for his people. It's not biblical Christianity to sit down and to stagnate and to become comfortable. We are to be expending energy to come into conformity with Jesus. Coming into conformity with Jesus. This is supposed to be like at the top of our job description. I will fight today. I will work today. I will strive today to be more conformed to the image of my awesome God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we're real Christians, we will not stagnate. We cannot stagnate. You can't just sit there with the living God. If you really know Him, if you've really met Him, it's impossible to do that. 
I'm not saying we don't have seasons in our life when we're not as close to Him as we ought to be, but beloved, if you've seen Him, I think it's impossible just to sit down spiritually. I, I, I personally think it's impossible. I personally think it's impossible. Jesus challenges us every day if we're in His Word. Challenge every assumption in your life. Challenge every assumption in your life. Every one of them. Every single one of them. And push the spiritual envelope. Push it. Push it today. When you get up in the morning, decide how you're going to push the spiritual envelope on Monday, October 4th, 2010. How are you going to push the spiritual envelope in your life? How are you going to ensure that you're expending energy and you're growing in Christ-likeness? You're proactively. This is, hey, this is a priority for me. This is not some passive thing. This is a priority for me. One of my old football coaches back in high school used to say, if you're not moving forward, what? You're losing the ground. He said, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. Beloved, you never stay the same. You all know this, right? If you think you're staying the same as a Christian, Satan has your ear. You never stay the same. You're either digressing or you're progressing. You don't just stay the same. You don't just stay the same. The Philippians had loved Paul in a very real and tangible, radical, extravagant way. And he says, he says, I'm praying that your love would abound still more. Paul says, you've loved me like, a Christ, like Christians should love me, but I pray that you will learn to love more. Isn't that beautiful? I love this. I love this. So beloved, never sit down as a Christian. Never stop growing and maturing and changing and being conformed into the image of Jesus. It's part of the excitement and satisfaction of being a Christian. I've told you this so many times. Boring Christianity is an oxymoron. Now, I'm not talking about the dead kind of religious stuff that some people call Christianity. I'm talking about biblical Christianity. Boring uh, biblical Christianity is an oxymoron. It just is. If you're walking with Christ, you'll be anything but bored. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12, you need to lay hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. And that's my, one of my challenges to you tonight, beloved. Lay hold. With great purpose. Lay hold. In the morning, lay hold. Lay hold. Lay hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. As Paul, Paul starts with love here in verse 9, he begins to show us what it looks like for... Uh, for the Philippians, one sixth thing to be true in our own lives. That God's hand is on us, that the potter's hands are on us, and He's completing that good work. This is what it looks like. It starts with love. It starts with love. Then He continues. He continues um, in knowledge and in discernment. Abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment in all discernment you guys know what Paul told the Corinthians you know that great that famous chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 13 now abide faith hope love these three but the greatest of these is what love, love. Paul starts with love this is where he starts as he talks about what Philippians 1 6 will look like in 
the believer's life. God says if you speak with tongues of angels, if you know all mysteries and have all knowledge, if you have all faith as to remove mountains, if you give all your possessions to the poor, if you give your body to be burned, but you have not love, He says it's just noise. It profits nothing. So Paul starts with love. He starts with love. And then again in uh, verse 9 there. Verse 9, this is that our love would abound in real knowledge and all discernment. Real knowledge and all discernment. I just want to interject here before I forget to say it. The kind of love that Paul's talking about, it's not souped up human love. That's not what it is. It's the love of Jesus. It's the love of the Spirit of God flowing through us. And it's not always about feeling. Sometimes it's about an act of the will. I don't want you to forget that, beloved. I don't want you to forget that. What is Paul saying when he talks about real knowledge and all discernment? He's talking about our love being regulated by the Word of God. This goes back to the the joke I shared with you earlier about flying without instrumentation. Christians are to fly with instrumentation. Our instrumentation is the Word of God. It doesn't sit on our shelf and collect dust. We're in it. We We need to know what God says. It's our meat. It's our drink. It's our food. It's our food. With respect to love, we can't just simply say, I don't love my husband. He makes me nuts. Wives, you can't say that. Why can't you say that, wives? What does God say? Wives, love your husbands. I'll get the husbands next time. You can't just say, I don't want to love that person at church. They really let me down. They really disappointed me. God says what? Love the brethren. You don't have a choice if you call yourself a Christian. We can't just say, because our love's regulated by the Word of God, we can't just say, I don't want to love that person at work. They treat me like dirt. They've made themselves my enemy. God says what? Love your enemy. And lastly, <clears throat> on the other side of it, you hear some people say, well, I fell in love and I couldn't help myself. And Yes, we, we, we were involved in illicit sex, but I couldn't help myself because we're in love. The Christian's love, even their emotional love, is what? It's regulated by what? By God's Word. I'm not saying we don't fall, but I'm saying we don't make excuses by dumbing down the meaning of biblical love, by dumbing down the the meaning of it. Our feelings and our actions are to be regulated by God's Word. You know, even sometimes, you guys know this, um, we have to say very hard things to people who don't want to hear them. Do we do that because we don't love them? Often in a Christian context, we we do it precisely because we do love them. We do love them. So we have to say the hard thing to them. We have to say that's a sin. You should desist. That's a sin. That displeases God. If you love your brother, you'll go to him and you'll talk to him about these kinds of things. You know, it's easy, it's easy not to confront people, right? 
I can tell you how many times I did not want to confront someone. I don't like it. I don't like it. But if I love that person, I will go do it. I will go do it. Because biblical love is different than the world. You know, the world says love is blind, but biblical love is not blind. It has the eyes of God. It has the eyes of God. We know right from wrong. We know the truth from the lie. We know that God's Word instructs and exhorts and yes, sometimes rebukes. And as Christians, we need to use God's Word like that with all love. With all love. It's how Christians practice love. With real knowledge and in all discernment. Regulated by the Word of God. Look at verses 10 and 11. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Did you notice the two little words there that begin verse 10? So that. So that. What does that mean? So that. What preceded is in progression to what will follow. He says, I pray that your love will abound still more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. There's progression here. We are to move into excellence as we have knowledge and discernment built on the foundation of the Word of God. I love what John MacArthur says here about approving that which is excellent. This is really quite simple, but I thought it was insightful. It's, this does not mean the ability to distinguish between good and bad. Everyone can do that. The unregenerate man can do that. This is the ability to, to distinguish between the good and the best. To distinguish between what is simply good and what is best. I love that. This is uh, letting our love abound in real knowledge and in all discernment. It's not just running with the herd. It's not living on impulse. It's not settling for what everyone else in the world is settling for. I know the best. The best is Jesus Christ. And yes, I fall and I sin, but then I go and confess and He washes me and I get up and I start again with Him. Beloved, this is the Christian life. I have people come to me all the time and I know I preach hard. And, and people come to me and say, Jim, you preach too hard and it's convicting me and, and I don't like it and, and I don't even know if I'm a Christian. And I say, listen, why do you think I preach like this? <laughs> I'm under conviction too. Beloved, we're all sinners. Romans chapter 7. Paul knew he was a sinner. But the real Christian confesses his sin. He repents. And he gets up. And he starts walking with Jesus again. Paul says, man, I run to win. How many of you are running your Christian life to win? Nobody. Okay. So we got some work to do. No one. Uh, Paul says, I run to win. Beloved, that's what we're called to do. Christianity is not some little side boulevard or cul-de-sac in your life. It is your life if you belong to 
the Lord. We are to be proactive, intentional, never look back, pursue, pursuing the Lord Jesus. Disciples don't merely react to life. We seize the day. I'm not saying we're perfect, but this is, this is our call to seize the day in order to be, be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. This, this last week in both the men's Bible study and the young adults Bible study, the same thing came up. To be heavenly minded. To be heavenly minded. You know, Paul's talking, basically talking about this. Real knowledge and all discernment means we are heavenly minded. We, we are looking at the Bema seat. We're pointing at Christ. That's the focus of our life. Yes, we have many other things we deal with, but the overriding, overarching uh, focus of our life is the Bema seat. We are heavenly minded. We are living for that day of Christ that uh, Paul mentioned. Verse 6, that day of Christ. We build our life around that reality. Paul's not saying here that, that the Christian is sinless. You, you read this here and it says uh, uh, that we'll be uh, approved what is excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. Blameless is not talking about being uh, sinless. It's talking about not giving offense. In fact, the literal Greek is, to, uh, is, is rendered offense, offenseless. We are offenseless in our lives. We don't, we don't stumble our brothers. If we do, we go to them. And we tell them, we, we, we ask for their forgiveness and we confess our sin to them. We, we, we seek to live in such a way that we don't stumble our brothers. It goes back to where we started. It goes back to that selfless love. I will forego my liberty in Christ if it stumbles one of my weaker brothers. Amen? Isn't that what uh, the New Testament tells us? I think in Paul's letter... One of his letters to the, the Corinthians. All this love, knowledge, discernment, sincerity, and blamelessness is manifested in us, verse 11, with the fruit of righteousness. What is God saying to us? What is the fruit of righteousness? Anybody want to guess? It's really simple. It's just good works. It's just good works in your life. It's the good works that are flowing through your life. Now, we know that this is God's purpose that... Uh, good works should flow through our life. Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beloved, God's prepared beforehand. He's prepared beforehand the good works we should walk in. Man, that should be our... Yeah, when we get up on Monday. Lord, what are the good works you've asked me to... What are the good works you've prepared for me to walk in Amen. Today. And that could be our first prayer. What are the good works, Lord, you prepared? Help me find them. Help me do them. Help me walk in real knowledge and discernment. Help me walk in love. Help me walk blamelessly before my brothers and before the unbelievers. That you would be mighty. You would seem to be seen to be mighty in my life. That's a great way to start the day. These good works, we know they don't originate in us. They flow through us. It's the John 15 thing we talked about several weeks ago. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Jesus said, so prove to be my disciples by bearing much fruit and glorifying the Father. Paul prays for these people. He loves these people. That their love would abound in real knowledge and discernment. 
that they would be able to discern between that which is simply good and the best, to radically pursue the integrity of God, to walk in the good works that God has prepared for them, and to be a living testimony to the reality and sufficiency and glory of Jesus Christ. There's our job description. That's what it looks like when Philippians 1.6 is true of us. That God is completing the good work. He's begun. So I'll close, beloved, with just this comment. You ain't just going to fall into this kind of life. You're not just going to fall into it. You know this, right? You don't just fall into Christianity and, and live it in a way that honors God. It's no accident. You don't get it from your parents. You don't get it from your church. doesn't matter if you grew up. You, know, you can't get it from anybody. It's not something someone can hand off to you. It has to be real in your life. It comes again from that, that changed heart. You have to proactively and intentionally choose this kind of life. You're not just going to fall into it. You're going to have to decide in the morning when you get up, I'm living for Christ or I'm just going to keep living for myself. And there might be one or two of you in here that that would fit. I don't know. I don't know. It's not going to happen by itself. You've got to seize the day. You've got to be heavenly minded. It reminds me, I, as I was preparing to close out this sermon in my notes, it reminded me of that Olympian that I mentioned to you on occasion, that, that, that gold medalist. He's standing on that medal stand, right? And it's just an accident he got there. I mean, he wasn't really pointing at that. It was just an accident. I mean, there he is. He's number one in the world. But it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's just serendipitous, right? No. His whole life was about that. His whole life was about standing there. And beloved, when we went through our Heaven series, we talked a lot about this. Our whole life is to be about the day we will stand in front of Jesus at the Bema Seat. We need to be point every day. Every day. I know we all fail miserably. But our heart beat is to live for that day that we stand before Jesus. We're going we're to uh, use love with real knowledge and discernment. We're going to be blameless before the brethren. We're not going to give offense. We're not going to stumble. Our lives are going to look like Philippians 1.6, like God's hands are on us. You can't simply live by impulse, emotion, or mood. You can't run with the herd. You can't take the course of least resistance. You can't be self-absorbed. And you can't simply react to life. The King of love has stood for us. And He's called us to live a life abounding in love, regulated by His Word. Beloved, this is a high call. It's Philippians 1.6, fleshed out. It's Philippians 1.6, fleshed out. It's for His glory. It's real Christianity, beloved. And real Christianity, it's for the glory of God. We're going to take communion tonight and we have, uh, we have open communion here. So, all who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and followed Him in believers' baptism, you're welcome to partake of communion with us. Uh, the way we do it is Tyler will play a song and you prepare your heart, you confess your sin. You know, Paul tells the Corinthians, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Um, 
you confess your sin, you prepare yourself, you come, you come and take the cup and the bread, go back to your seat, I will stand and I will read a text, and then we will partake of the elements at that time. Okay? Everyone understand? Prepare your hearts to come and remember what this awesome God has done in our behalf. This beautiful Lord Jesus. Thank you.